You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. This month, recovery after stroke and malingering after concussion. 25 years ago, Derek Wade, a professor and consultant in neurological rehabilitation at the Oxford Centre for Enablement, published a now highly cited paper in JNNP on measuring and predicting recovery after stroke. As the clinical indicators he used are now joined by biomarkers and imaging, he and Nick Ward, JNMP Associate Editor and Reader in Clinical Neurology at UCL, discuss the past and future of the field. One of the problems with going for biomarkers and, uh, of, of whatever type is that you're probably going to predict. It's not going to be a big surprise. But on the other hand, it may be no better than and often will be less good than straightforward clinical stuff and the clinical stuff can be done without having to select patients. But firstly, poor effort, exaggeration and malingering after concussion. Jonathan Silver, a clinical professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine, believes that there are factors other than these which explain why some patients report symptoms which seem more severe than their injury warrants. Killian Welch, a consultant neuropsychiatrist in Edinburgh, UK, discussed them with him. As you discuss in the paper, though systematic reviews find that a mild traumatic brain injury is not associated with long-term cognitive impairment, a minority of people do experience prolonged symptoms and score poorly on neuropsychological testing. Uh, this is often attributed to poor effort, which is itself assessed with specific tests and is seen by some as synonymous with malingering. In this paper, you challenge the idea that apparent poor effort on cognitive testing is a conscious attempt to misrepresent neuropsychological uh, consequences of a mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, might be a, you'd be able to explain your thinking behind this, uh, maybe beginning by explaining what effort tests are, as not all listeners will be familiar with the concept. Um, I think the best way to start is with two examples. One is, let's say you, you see a patient who's had a mild traumatic brain injury and has had continued symptoms, and it's about six months after, after the injury. And you administer tests that are relatively easy, that even people who have more significant cognitive problems do not have that much difficulty completing. And this individual now performs in a way that you think is not consistent with the level of their injury. The reaction of most clinicians is that this individual is not doing well because they're not trying. Mm -hmm. But now let me shift it to another scenario. And it's appropriate that you're speaking from Scotland. So let's say you play golf, which you must, and you're on the old course at St. Andrews. You're on the 18th green, and you have a two-foot putt for a birdie. If you make that two-foot putt, you will break 80 for the first time in your life. You miss the putt. Is that because you're not trying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or is that because maybe you're trying too hard, or you're nervous, or you're anxious? There are many other common mechanisms that we see in everybody that may actually account for many of these findings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
it's a great example, and uh, it really struck me reading the paper, the example of the, the athletes under pressure. In the paper, you actually expand on, an, on a number of theories and, uh, and incorporate these into your explanation, drawing from uh, social psychology and, and behavioral economics. Could you say a bit about this? So, for example, there's this concept called stereotype threat. Stereotype threat is the observation that society's view of a subgroup will actually affect the performance of that subgroup. The most commonly researched um, area in, in the United States has been with the performance of African Americans on academic tests. Depending on the setup of that test, individuals will perform differently. So, for example, if a group of African Americans are given a test saying that this is going to this test your intelligence, they will perform more poorly than if they're given the same questions with the setup that how you do on this test does not reflect intelligence. And similar findings have been with women, math majors. How does this affect individuals with, with brain injury? There are a couple of studies or, or several studies. They assessed by questionnaire which individuals may have had a mild traumatic brain injury or not. No one's in treatment. And then assessed whether there's any difference in the levels of symptoms people report under one of two questioning scenarios. One is looking for symptoms that your average college student has, and the other is looking for symptoms that are common in individuals who have had a concussion. The people who've had a concussion, when you ask them these questions under the concussion scenario, they report many more symptoms than if you just ask them the same question under the average college student symptom scenario. The setup of the question and how you elicit the symptoms actually affect the symptom rates that you see. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. this has never been done with any clinical population. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's just fascinating, yeah. I also find your discussion of uh, revenge and loss aversion really helpful in understanding the, the, the processes that influence a person's actions after an accident. Uh, could you outline your thinking there? First, I don't know whether the whole litigation compensation uh, situation is as noxious in other countries as it is in the United States. Between it, yeah, pretty noxious in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a yes. Yeah. Uh, but what we also have in the United States is whether you get treated or not depends on your insurance. Um, so there's already an adversarial situation. If you have a brain tumor, you get treated. If you have a brain injury, you get referred to people who often are in the position of saying you don't need care. So you have this adversarial situation. And what happens? The individual who is hurt, and let's assume that they are actually generally hurt, starts developing anger about this whole process. Um, they develop anger about being sent to individuals who are, quote, independent evaluators, who they see is their job is to tell them they don't need care. They also get angry at the fact that no one has recognized that they're hurt and whether it's the other driver of the accident, whether it's the owner of the workplace, no one has even said they're sorry for what has happened. And what we know from certain data is 
that this anger has has its cost. And Dan Ariely, who's a behavioral economist at Duke, has done some very interesting, it's elegant and simple work demonstrating that not saying you're sorry in a very simple situation can be translated into a financial cost. We also know in medical malpractice that physicians or hospitals apologizing for mistakes actually decrease the malpractice rates. And what happens theoretically in litigation and compensation is as the patient gets angrier and angrier, they start developing more and more symptoms um, and want more and more sort of compensation in return to try to offset how angry they are. There's a concept in behavioral economics called loss aversion, which demonstrates that in order to compensate for the loss of $1, you actually need to win $2. As I've explained to patients, this is a no-win situation. Once you're in this litigation situation, you will never get a result that will make you feel better, improved, whole, um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a losing situation, which I believe is a significant driver of, of increased symptoms. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that this isn't the review of effort test, but I am just curious what, what uh, your view about results on, on um, effort tests based on forced choice, where people are actually scoring at or below chance would be, and, and whether you would still regard it as possible that the process occurring here are, are potentially unconscious. Um, well, there, there are different sort of grading scores for, for effort tests. And what I'm addressing is not the person who is obviously malingering. For example, the person who says they can't walk and is seen running upstairs. Mm -hmm. And I'm not focused on the people that score less than chance or even at at chance. But sometimes the the cutoff scores on these effort tests aren't 50%, it's 80% or 90%. To go back to the stereotype threat, the effect of stereotype threat on the performance of cognitively healthy individuals is, I think it was four questions out of 20 on a test. I mean, it was highly significant. Mm -hmm. I have never seen a neuropsychological report that has ever discussed the possible effect of stereotype threat on cognitive results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is a very common psychological process that clearly affects people's performance on, on tests. On reading this this thoughtful paper and, and, and listening to you now, you really get the idea that the concepts you're discussing and your thoughts on them have really been uh, gestating for some time. Uh, it does make me wonder, did, did something precipitate you writing it now? Um, and, and also, what, what would you hope that this paper will achieve? The initial precipitant for this was I thought that people were missing what I thought were obvious reasons why individuals were having difficulty in life and on symptoms and on tests, and they were so concentrated on what the interpretation was statistically, we were missing actually the essence of what's going on in our patients. And this can go beyond just individuals with concussion, because I usually see people with traumatic brain injury, I'm emphasizing this, but I think this pertains to many individuals, even with other psychiatric diseases and neurologic disorders, not just, not just concussion. That was Killian Welch speaking to Jonathan Silver. Now, the past and future of predicting and measuring recovery after stroke.
Welcome uh, to this podcast. I'm Nick Ward. I'm an associate editor at the JNNP. And today I'm going to be speaking to Derek Wade about a paper that he published in JNNP in 1987, which was called Functional Abilities After Stroke, Measurement, Natural History and Prognosis. And the reason we're interested in this paper is that it's extremely highly cited in JNNP's history. And Derek has recently written an impact commentary on this paper. And we thought we'd talk about it a little bit further in a bit more detail. So welcome, Derek. Thanks for coming to speak to me today. That's a pleasure. It's nice to be talking to you. So um, 25 years ago, you started to uh, put together this piece of work. And, of course, at the time, when you start to do work, you have no idea about whether it's going to have any impact. Mm-hmm. So what do you think that were the main, the main expected outcomes of this and, and also the, the unexpected outcomes? One of the really unexpected outcomes in in some of the research we were doing was finding that urinary incontinence was a very strong predictive factor of outcome at six months in in a range of things, but in particular in how disabled or dependent somebody was. And we'd first noticed this on a, on a second another data set some four or five years before. And I think most people have said, you know, that's rubbish. How can urinary incontinence uh, four days after stroke? be predictive of anything particularly one of the things we were really interested in was just saying well we've we've shown this in other data sets is it true and and that was confirmed most of the other findings i think were as expected which is now sort of well known i think at that time perhaps less well known about rapid recovery at the beginning and then slowing off by six months and although this data set didn't look at it, it sort of really stops at about six months in terms of increasing independence. And looking at predictive factors again, which we're always interested in. So just coming back to the issue of natural history, I mean, I think the shape of those recovery curves, as you mentioned, is is relatively well known now. But you make a point at the end of the impact commentary about deterioration, late deterioration after six months. I mean, you might say that this is relatively well-known now, but I, I, I'm not sure that it is something that's that's really um, well-known. I don't think it's all that well-known at the moment, and, and it's an interesting question. We we followed these people up only for six months, so clearly our own data set beyond that was very limited. I think we had some that we went on to a year, but, but it's a very small data set. But the, I was involved with some research later at St. Thomas's and also an Oxford cohort that was followed up when I moved to Oxford uh, and both showed that after six months, a sort of average, the mean level of, of dependence started to decline. And clearly, it's not really sure whether this is that an individual starting to decline or that people are having recurrent strokes and therefore the population is beginning to decline. The people we looked at in Oxfordshire, we found that the decline was actually not in an individual. So if you'd achieved your level by and large, you kept it until you developed some other problem. So it wasn't necessarily that your index stroke was worsening so much as you were developing other new strokes or indeed other things that were just making you get worse again. Talking to um, patients and relatives about the issue of these recovery curves, it's become quite an interesting and hotly debated issue about the plateauing of recovery curves you're pointing out that there's actually can be some deterioration mm. it might point to a, a slightly worse scenario than the one in which uh, patients are often told that they will 
have no further recovery after sometimes they're told three months, sometimes they're told six months. And there's a, there's a move now to say, well, actually, you can improve with continued um, yeah, uh, yeah. practice and therapy beyond six months. So, I mean, maybe one of the causes of this plateauing or even this deterioration is simply a, a, um, a drop-off in the amount of practice or, or therapy yeah, that people yeah, undertake. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think that's right. And I think, in a sense, one of the downsides of this paper is, is the sort of rather bleak, I mean, there are only three time points anyway, but the rather bleak so-called recovery curves, because they, they really hide an awful lot. They're, they're entirely averages, and some other data that we published from around the same time uh, shows the individual curves for patients, actually, for arm recovery. You plot the 45 recovery curves for individuals done two weeks, uh, twice a week records. They're all over the place, absolutely all over the place. Some people stay low and suddenly jump up. Some jump up and then drop down again and then jump up. Others sort of go in a wavy form. Virtually nobody, but nobody follows the mean, nice, smooth, mean uh, curve. So... The recovery curves look very good, and you say to patients, yes, well, you will recover you know, more in the first three weeks and then slowly thereafter, because that's what the mean says. Actually, that's probably not true in the majority of cases. Mm-hmm. And then I think your other point about this so-called plateau, the Barthel is, is fairly crude. Um, you know, you are either walking independently or not, whereas, of course, what people are interested in is that they walk 100 metres or maybe a mile. Now, the Barthel won't pick up that change in walking. So and what I normally say to patients myself is if, you, if you've recovered a function by six months, then it is likely you can improve it. But we don't have the sort of research data, or we didn't then anyway have the research data to show that. We do now. Let's just talk a little bit about the Bartel as a, uh, yeah. as a measure, because um, even though you mentioned that the, the recovery curves themselves are bleak. I, yeah. I thought that this was a very good advert for the Bartel. In fact, you compare it favourably mm. to um, other measures yeah. that have been adopted since. I, I still think it's actually the best single measure one can use on the grounds that it, it certainly stood the test of time. It must be nearly uh, 50 years or more now since it was first ever published. And all the comparisons with any other uh, measure like the functional independence measure shows that it's equally good. No, no measure is better than it. It's not disease-specific, so this is in stroke, but it, it will work in any disease. It, um, even the uh, Norfolk Park Care Dependency Scale, which is highly favoured at the moment for nursing dependency, as a straight measure, if you want to know, the Barthel gives you precisely the same information, and we and others have shown in about four or five papers, a very, very strong correlation, almost straight-line correlation uh, between the two and between them and time spent nursing. One of the really interesting things, just as an aside, as everybody notices, we divided it into um, grades, uh, very severe, severe, mild and moderate, uh, 0 to 4, 5 to 9, 10 to 14, 15 to 19 and 20. And quite a lot of people have asked me, you know, well, how did you decide that? You know, what was your um, method in the thinking of psychometrics? Actually, it's completely arbitrary. Um, all of this was analyzed on a data program that I wrote for myself in BASIC uh, on a Commodore. And it just happened to program out very easily. So that the groups are entirely there because I just thought that was an easier way to do it. There was no underlying analysis to say these are sensible groups. 
So do you think that explanation will stop people coming up and asking you what no, the scientific no basis of the categorization <laughs> is? Well, it might, it might now if they listen to this, but um, uh, up to now I still get emails coming in saying, um, you know, we, we think this is very good, it seems to be perfectly valid. How did you decide it? The question of prediction seems to be undergoing something of a renaissance, and, it, and that may seem surprising to you, mm. but, I, but I hear it mentioned a lot, in, not just in terms of stroke, but in terms of... Uh, other conditions and often mm. often the term biomarker is used yes. and I think really what people are talking about there is using uh, other tools to try yes, and add yeah. into predictive models. I, I wonder yeah. where you, what you think about current attempts to predict things or predict the future particularly in, uh, after stroke. I think uh, particularly after stroke although I suspect it applies to everything else one thing that disappoints me is that people will say oh we've got this biomarker or whatever, for example, transcranial stimulation or some other structural imaging or whatever, and say, you know, this predicts very well, and, you know, they produce data in relatively small numbers, and it does sort of associate. But they never compare it with often any other predictive thing, let alone sort of clinical predictive things. And almost always, when you look at this, just the numerical data there isn't a comparison, obviously, you can make, but they're not doing any better than um, clinical stuff. So I think one of the problems with going for biomarkers and, uh, of, or whatever type is that you're probably going to predict. It's not going to be a big surprise. But on the other hand, it may be no better than and often will be less good than uh, straightforward clinical stuff. And the clinical stuff can be done without having to select patients. So I think one of my concerns is a sort of isolationist will show that X is good at predicting. And I think the other point I'd make is that actually I, I don't think anyone's ever done any better than urinary incontinence for stroke. And there have been one or two studies that have investigated it. So I, I mean, just to, uh, just to echo that, I think for anybody working in that field and interested in biomarkers, um, the question should always be, can this particular uh, measure do any better than what we can already do so so essentially the simple bedside clinical uh, tests often do quite well and the question should always be can can this extra measure be it, uh, brain imaging or neurophysiology can it add anything to the model i think yes, that... no, exactly that's what i mean if they are sat then it would be it'd be more interesting and actually more useful so do you in terms of in terms of predicting things do you think we'll ever get to the stage where we will be able to predict things for individual patients so for example questions that that patients or carers or even the mm. clinicians looking after them might be more interested in so so more specific things you know what are the chances that you'll be able to walk independently what are the chances you'll be able to get dressed or have a conversation in a yeah. crowded room i suspect not much better for for two or three reasons I, one of the reasons is that Often when, when the relative or person asks you that question, you and the person have completely different meanings of the word that they're using. So they say to you, will I walk? And you say, yes, you will walk. You mean, um, yes, you will be able to get out of a chair and move from, let's say, your chair to the dining room chair, and it'll be fairly slow and you'll limp, but you'll get there and you won't need any help. They mean, will I be able to go up Helvellyn or you know, go around the supermarket uh, in the normal speed. And the second issue is I think that there are so many un either unknown or, or really very difficult to quantify variables. You know, motivation, 
whatever motivation is, it clearly exists, but I'm not sure how you measure it and how you factor it in um, into what people do. And, and part of it is, is a sort of motivation drive, willingness to practice, and part of it is a, a willingness to take risks. But some people will say, I don't mind about the risks of falling, I'm going to, to walk anyway. And other people will say, no, I'm too scared of falling, I won't. So I suspect the number of other variables and, and the different ones that are important in different people really going to make it always very difficult. So some people, this is my particular feel, so I'm, I'm hopeful of this as well, think that the answer may lie in, in brain imaging. So the potential that all of the the variables that you're talking about, mm. uh, motivation, the capacity yeah. to learn, for example, which is probably very important in rehabilitation. Yeah. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. Together with uh, an understanding of the uh, of the baseline level of impairment, which is mm. which which ought to be captured in some way in the structural imaging, that 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 may contribute to these models. Do you think it's Do you think it's worth pursuing? I think I think what they're likely to contribute is, in a sense an idea of what the upper limit might be. You know, if, if you're missing this area of your cerebral cortex, you, know, you may do whatever you like, you are just never going to achieve it. So you could then turn that round on its head and say, on the other hand, if it's there, then at least potentially you might be able to, and you give a statistic on that, if you've got this amount of this cortical area present, then there's a 90% chance that you could recover hand function but then a whole lot of other things will crop in. The example I usually give to patients is it's worth practicing this because you can do that, but it's not worth practicing that because you can't. I say just the same as if I were to start running more, I would probably run better, but I couldn't fly however hard I try flapping my arms for however long. So to make the point that there is a sort of structural limit to what a human can do, and then in stroke or any other disease, there will be something that the nervous system just limits. You just cannot do it. We're hopeless at stopping people because we know, we've known for a very long time that people who can't uh, basically move their fingers three weeks after stroke never regain functional arms, but we still pour millions of hours of therapy into trying to get the arm better. That's after stroke. Indeed, yes. So it'll be an interesting challenge when you come up with something which is, let's say it's a 95% certainty on imaging to have done it, to say that, and then see if you can persuade therapists, staff and doctors stop doing what they want to do, let alone the patient. Derek Wade laying down a challenge there. He was speaking to Nick Ward. That's all from us for this edition. September's JNMP is a special themed issue looking at movement disorders, so we'll be exploring the latest research on these in next month's podcast. In the meantime, don't forget our blog site for more commentary. The latest post discusses complex regional pain syndrome. And there's always our Twitter feed for more updates from the journal. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.